invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 13. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. This is those three chapters in Matthew where Jesus sits down and teaches for three chapters worth. Greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever brought. I was trying to think, what's past tense of preached? I guess preached. Are you with me? Prault. I made that up. You can use it. The title of the message is Influence. And Jesus has been talking in the Sermon on the Mount so far, the Beatitudes. Blessed are they who are like this because there's a reward. He's about now to talk about the influence that believers are going to have in the world, on earth and in the world. So influence, what's your influence? You're impacting the world around you. You know what? People are watching you whether you know it or not. You may not know you're influencing somebody. You may not know whether it's a good influence or a bad influence, but you're influencing people. One of the things we tried to teach our kids when they were younger was to put their seatbelt on. As soon as you get in the van, as soon as you get in the car, put your seatbelt on. Well, I wasn't used to driving my wife's van much, so I got in and didn't put my seatbelt on. We're driving down the road, and my son out of the back seat says, Dad, you're not setting a good example. Or you're not setting an example. My daughter said, yes, he is. It's just not a good example. <laughs> so influence. I read this week about a missionary to the islands of Vanuatu. His name was John Getty. Anybody ever heard of John Getty? I have never heard of John. You have, Don? The, the fact is we're going to get to heaven and find out there's people who have impacted the world that we never knew their name on earth, and yet they're being used in a big way in the kingdom of God. But listen to... John Getty, he worked in, in an island off the coast of Vanuatu for 24 years. On the tablet erected to his memory, these are the words that are inscribed. When he landed in 1848, there were no Christians. When he left in 1872, there were no heathens. <laughs> That's the impact of a guy who only one of us in the room have ever heard of, a missionary to a little island you never heard of off the coast of Vanuatu. So what about you? What's your influence in the world? Two things that Jesus is going to teach us is salt and light. So let me read the first verse of Matthew's Gospel, verse 13 of chapter 5, and then go from there. You are the light of the earth. No, excuse me. You are the salt. I'm so focused on light. This one's salt. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. I want to stop with those first two words. You are. He's going to use it again in verse 14 as he talks about light. You. It's a plural word. It's not just, he's not just speaking to one person in the crowd. He's speaking to the entire congregation. He's speaking to anybody who's trusted him as Lord and Savior who become followers of him. And this is early on in his ministry, but people were accepting him as their Savior. They were following Jesus. That's why thousands gathered to hear him teach. That's why later on in the gospel we'll see the feeding of the 5,000 and that was just the men. You count the women and children, it was multiple thousands of people that Jesus was impacting. And they're coming to faith in Christ. And so Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. So you is plural. Are means that describes you right now. What Jesus is teaching is not, let me give you ten steps to become salt. Jesus is saying, if you're a child of God, you are salt. You're flavoring the world. Salt was very important in the times of Christ. It stood for high value. In fact, listen to some of the uses of the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. Were you aware of that in the Old Testament? They were asked to add salt to every offering they brought before the Lord. 
So it's high value. It was a sign of a covenant between God and his people. Numbers 18, 19. All the offerings of the holy gifts which the sons of Israel offer to the Lord, I've given to you and your sons and your daughters with you as a perpetual allotment. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord to you and your descendants with you. So it was a sign of the covenant. It is also used by Elisha to purify a pool in Jericho. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 21. He went out to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have purified these waters. There shall, be, there shall not be from here their death or unfruitfulness any longer. So it was used in offerings. It was used to purify. It was even, we're told, historically, it was used to pay off Roman soldiers. Not always, but sometimes they were paid in salt. You ever heard the phrase, he's not worth his salt? That's where it comes from. Romans were paid off by salt. But there's some characteristics, and I want you to see characteristics of salt in the real world, but also not, not in the real world, but in the physical world and in the spiritual world. So characteristics. First, it enhances flavor. It enhances flavor. That's true physically. How many of you salt stuff before you even taste it? I'm not going to name any names, but I see people, man, pick up the salt and pepper shaker. What if they've already put a lot of salt in there? then you're just really going to be salty. Maybe you like salt that much. But salt infl- in enhances flavor. Spiritually speaking, salt enhances flavor. Jesus changes things. If you've come to faith in Christ, your life's been changed. And so you're called to be salt in the earth that you walk among, where, whether it's at school, work, neighborhood, your place of business, where you shop. We're, we're an influence, an influence of enhancing flavor it's also in essence it's different from the medium in which it is put so you put salt in something it's not like the steak or not like the water you're putting it in it it changes it same thing is true with us in the world spiritually we're not of this world we're called to be salt in the world we're not called to be of the world three it's medicinal did you know you're you'll die without salt salt's incredibly important in your diet i know they have salt substitutes now I remember my dad was put on a no-salt diet. Here was his no-salt diet. He'd take a saltine cracker and rub the salt off of it. Now, I don't know how effective that was for getting all the salt out of it, but some of you are on no-salt diets, but you can't totally be without salt. Your body needs it, so it, it's medicinal. In fact, my mom used it. You ever have a sore throat and your mom or dad made you gargle with salt water? I was a little kid. I didn't know how to gargle. I'm just drinking salt water. You know, as you get older, you learn to gargle. If you've never tried that, you get a sore throat. Gargle with salt water, warm salt water, and put salt in it. It'll help heal your throat. You learn that here first. Salt also creates thirst. Spiritually speaking, when people hang out with us, it ought to make them thirsty for God. They ought to see something in us that's different. They ought to see the joy of the Lord, the fruit of the Spirit welling up within us, the character that we talked about in the Beatitudes, those eight principles of the Beatitudes. The world ought to be attracted to Christ because we've created a thirst as salt does. Salt also preserves. Back in the days of the Old Testament and New Testament, they didn't have refrigerators, so they had to salt meat to make it last longer. Well, we have refrigerators now, but salt still preserves. It's, it slows down decay. And the same thing's true with us as believers. As you're in the world, did you know that God is withholding wrath because you're still here? The Bible says we're not destined for wrath, so as a child of God, you're not destined for wrath. So he's withholding wrath, but there's coming a day when the full wrath of God is going to be poured out. So we are preserving the world. It's also, sixth thought is, it's hidden. Often you don't see the salt. I've always wondered, why is all salt white? Why don't they make it multicolored? 
Can you imagine having that job? What's your job? I paint salt. You know, you put it in grits. You don't know how much you got in there because it's the same color as the salt. But it's hidden. And a lot of times the works go unseen. But those are the characteristics of salt. Look at some of the dangers. He says, but if it's become tasteless, what will you make it salty again with? What do you add to salt to make it salty? And here's why salt becomes less salty. It becomes impacted by its environment. Look at this picture. You ever seen this on your table when you're eating dinner? What's going on there? They put rice in there. What's the rice in there for? If you live at the beach, there's moisture everywhere. Salt air, but it's moisture. And what does it do to salt? It robs it of its flavor. For one thing, it clogs it up and you can't get it out of the shaker. How many of you have sat there and beat you know, at the restaurant trying to beat the salt so it unclumps or take the top off of it just so you can get some of it out? So the rice is put in there to preserve the flavor of the salt. But once it becomes tasteless, what's it, what can you do to make it salty again? You don't, what do you add to salt? It becomes no good. In fact, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out. If you've got salt back in those days and it wasn't, wasn't salty anymore, the only thing you could do is throw it out in the street and let it be trampled underfoot by men. So it became pavement. It became um, added to the path outside your house, I guess, to kill the weeds or whatever else. When I was a kid growing up, a lot of Saturdays in the summertime, we'd make homemade ice cream. And I'm talking old school. I'm talking the hand crank thing. How many of you remember those? It wasn't that they didn't have the electric ones by then, just we didn't have one. So my job was to crank it until it got hard. Then my older brother would crank it the next little bit, and then my father would crank it the last little bit. But one thing my father would always do after we'd eaten the ice cream and enjoyed the ice cream, he would take the salt water and pour it in the driveway. He'd go to where weeds were growing and pour it, and I thought, I guess that's the same thing here. It's not good anymore. You can't reuse that rock salt that you made the ice cream with, but you can put it out so it can be trampled underfoot by men. So we're called to be salty. Second passage we're called to show the light. Let me read the rest of the verses. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You are. There's that word again. You are. Plural you are. This means this is you now. This isn't something coming. He's not giving you ten steps to become the light. You already are the light. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Jesus even used the word light to refer to himself. There's a lot of things we're called in Scripture like sheep, goats, those kind of things. But one word is light. You are the light of the world. Jesus said in John 9, verse 5, While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. So what's Jesus preparing people for? While he's here, he was salt. He was light. He proved that through his three-year ministry. But once he left, he's left the job to us. And the good news is it's plural. It's to us collectively, all believers. That's the great thing about a church that's on mission for God. You're linked arm in arm with brothers and sisters in the faith to be salt and now in this case to be light. Now, salt is largely unseen. Light is, is seen, right? A few characteristics of light. Number one, it's visible. Light's visible. People see you before they hear you. I was reading this week. I remember as a kid growing up looking up the hill and a guy was bouncing a basketball. And I remember you could see the ball hit the ground before you could hear the ball hit the ground. And I asked my older brother who was supposedly wiser than me. I said, why is that? How come I can see it before I hear it? He said, well, you idiot. 
light travels faster than sound. Well, that didn't mean a whole lot to me, but light travels at 186,282 miles per second. Did y'all know that? That's fast. Sound travels 760 miles an hour in the air. So light travels faster than sound. In a practical sense, what does that mean? People are going to believe what they see before they believe what they hear. You can claim to be a Christian all your life. You can use your mouth to proclaim it. But if people don't see something different in you, they're not going to believe what you say. They're going to believe what they see over what, they, what you say. So light is visible. Secondly, light has a source. I have a flashlight on my phone. Now, that's not real helpful, but can you see that? What's the source of that light? Well, it's my phone. You know, phones used to just be phones. Now they're cameras, they're calendars, they're app holders, they're lights. Did you know you can even tell Siri to cut your light off? Hey, Siri, cut my flashlight off. Do you have an Australian guy, Siri? Okay, I've cut torch off. But it has a source. In the world, what's the greatest source of light? The sun. We just had an eclipse last week. Did y'all experience that? You had to get up early to see it or stay up late to see it. I'm not seeing any hands. Do you know we had an eclipse? Thank you. We had a blood moon. We had an eclipse. I remember when our kids were younger, I was trying to explain an eclipse to them, so I grabbed a basketball, a softball, and a golf ball. And I said, okay, the basketball, orange, that's the sun. The softball is the earth. The golf ball is the moon. When the softball passes between the, um, the earth, passes between the moon and the sun, that's why the sun, you saw it kind of fade away. Of course, they weren't impressed with that. They just wanted their toys back. But the source of the light for the moon is what? It doesn't produce any light on its own. It produces, it's, it's lit by the sun. So if the sun gets blocked from the moon, the moon goes dark. So it has a source. And the source of our light is Jesus, right? You can either point to Christ or point to yourself. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So light is visible. It has a source. It also exposes. Good or bad, light exposes. If you don't want people to see things in your house that are maybe not quite up to snuff, that aren't clean, keep the lights dim. Remember as a kid, we would have roaches in the, in the kitchen, and you go in there in the middle of the night to get something to drink, you turn the light off, it's like you busted up their party. They just... Why is, it that, why is it that sin hides from the light? Most of the things we do that we shouldn't do, we do in the dark when nobody can see us. So light exposes good or bad. Light also gives life, photosynthesis. I'm not going to give you a lesson on photosynthesis, but the trees, the leaves, the plants, the vegetables that you eat, all of those things need light. We need light to live. So light exposes, but it also gives life. Light also illumines. It, it guides your path. If it's dark, turn the light on so you can see where you're going. I know us men are kind of thinking in the middle of the night, I'm going to cut lights on, I don't want to, I don't want to wake up, tr truly wake up. But if you're walking through the living room and you hit your little toe on a recliner, how many of you have done that dance where you're holding your foot? And I see that hand, Gene. That's because we're stubborn. We, if you turn the light on, it may wake you up a little bit, but guess what? You'll see the pitfalls. And when you got young kids, it's not the recliner you're stepping on, it's Mr. Potato Head or a Lego or something like that. Just as painful and just as dangerous. But here's also the truth about light. The lights are on in here. How relevant is this light? Not really. It's not helping anybody, is it? Can y'all see it from the back? Anna says she can see it, but it's not helping you. If the lights were out, if it was 
pitch black dark, if the lights were gone, if the sun was down, this becomes very relevant. So here's the point. Light is irrelevant in life. Church is a place where we come and get our light shine. We get the batteries recharged. We clean the lens so that the light can shine brighter. But if the brightest your light ever shines is at church, it's not impacting the world out there. This light becomes very relevant in the darkness of the world. We live in a dark, wicked, godless generation. So I encourage you, don't just shine your light and don't just show it at church, but show it where it's relevant. Here's the dangers. Jesus goes on and says, you're the light of the world, but if the light is hidden, if you're miles away in a city on a hill, you can see it because of the sun shining on it, but even at night, the lamps that they light in that city, you're able to see that city for miles away. And then it would be crazy to light a lamp and put it under a basket. That's what an oil lamp looked like back in the times of Christ. So they'd put olive oil in it. Probably the fifth pressing of olive oil would be put in that lamp. And see the basket? Why wouldn't you put a, ba- a basket over the lamp? Because you're wanting people to see. Here's what happens when we're called the light of the world and we don't let our light shine. It's like putting a basket over it. We're not benefiting anybody. Light has become irrelevant even in darkness because it's not shining. So don't put a basket over it, but instead, next slide, you put it on a lampstand. I'll come back to that, Casey. That's a lampstand. In fact, some, some homes would have had a little shelf in the wall that you could light your lamp and put them so that it lit up the whole house. That's a lampstand. Go back to the Jeremiah slide. But I say, this is Jeremiah. This is what it ought to be like for us. Rather than covering up the light, we ought to be, have the same attitude as Jeremiah. Jeremiah was depressed at one time. You get to chapter 20 of Jeremiah, he does everything but, but curse God. He wants to die. But he says, you know what? If I say I will not remember him or speak anymore in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm very weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. That would be my prayer. I pray it would be your prayer. Listen, we need to let our light shine so that it's relevant in the world and it points people to Christ. And if we ever thought about not letting it shine, it would be like Jeremiah says, a fire that's within our hearts. That I, Even though I wanted to suppress it, I can't. So the danger is hiding it. The answer to that is put it on a lampstand. So you are the light. You're on a lampstand. You're influencing the world for good or bad. Listen, Find yourself in positions where you can influence positively for Christ and point people to Jesus. And what's our purpose anyway? You ever wonder, why am I here? I've even had some people ask that question. You know, I'm a Christian now, so I, I know I've got heaven secure. Why am I still here? That's because God's got a plan for your life. In fact, a group of theologians in the 1600s got together to answer that question. Why are we here? What is the chief end of man? The Westminster Catechism was born out of that, and the shorter catechism says this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I don't repeat that, but I want you to hear that. The chief end of man, so man or woman, the reason you're here is twofold, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's your purpose. And so Jesus, in verse 16, says, let your light shine in such a way that they may see it. You're not covering it up with a basket. You're not extinguishing it, but you're putting it in a position where it can be seen by the world and those around you. So let it happen in such a way that it shines that they may see. Again, you're not creating the light. You're simply reflecting the light. And the question to ask yourself is, when I do show the light, who is it bringing attention to? 
Because Jesus says, let them see the light. Let them see the good works that are produced by God in you, and it will make them glorify God, not you. You don't get the credit for it. You didn't create the light. You're not the light in that sense. You're simply reflecting the light that is there. So let them see your good works, the beautiful works that God is producing within you. Is there something different about you? You've come to faith in Christ, whether it was last week or years ago. Can you see the work of God in your life? In fact, have you ever had anybody ask you after you've come to faith in Christ, what's different about you? I remember when I first trusted Christ as my Savior and really really understood lordship a little later in my teenage years, I'd have people say, you're different. The jokes you used to tell, you don't tell them anymore. The places you used to go, you don't go there anymore. That ought to be the truth of your life as well. We are different. We're salt. We're light. We're not bringing attention to ourselves. We're bringing attention to the source of the light, and that is Jesus. So what do people see when they look at your light? Does your light only shine at church? And who gets the glory for the way that you live? Remember, the you is plural. The you is plural. So that is the benefit of being a part of a church where you're linked arm in arm. I learned an important lesson. Believe it or not, I actually preached in Ukraine 30 years ago. And it was right after the Iron Curtain had fallen. I was speaking to a festival of Christian teenagers, 1,500 teenagers from all over Ukraine who had professed faith in Christ. And by the way, to be a teenager back then in Ukraine mean you weren't married. There were 30-year-olds that were still considered teenagers or considered youth. They were part of the youth group. And so I was preaching over there, and one of the things I learned is they don't wear their wedding rings on their left hands. They wear them on their right hand. In fact, because mine was on my left hand, the Ukrainian walked up to me and said, How many wives do you have? I just got one. I've only had one. They said, well, why do you wear your ring on the left hand? I said, well, in our culture, that's where we wear it. I said, where do you wear it? He said, he said, well, if you're divorced or widowed, you'd move it to your left hand. But if you're married to one wife, you put it on your right hand. So I said, well, as long as we're here, I took my ring off and I put it on my right hand. 1,500 people applauded me. The problem with that was one of the guys, or I only took one of our deacons from the church with me. He put his on his right hand and it was so loose. We were throwing a football and it came off. So we're over here scouring the ground looking. Where's your ring? Where's your ring? So some of the teenagers walked up, and, and the translator had to translate what they were saying, and we were telling them he's lost his ring. As soon as they understood he had lost their ring, about 12 of them just walked off. I thought, well, that's rude. Help us look. But what they were doing is they walked over to the edge of the field and linked arms and started walking and found the ring. That ought to be the picture of the church. We're the light of the world. Find a church that is professing that. Find a church where you can do that kind of ministry through the church and find the lost ring, linked arm to arm. Just two passages to close with. The church in Ephesus, the, the seven churches that Jesus speaks to in Ephesus in, uh, in Revelation, the book of Revelation, one of them, I don't have this on the screen, but just let me remind you, the church at Ephesus, you remember them? They're the ones that Jesus said, I have one thing against you. All these good things that he's talked about in the first few verses, I have all these things, you, you don't tolerate evil, you've, you've, you're steadfast in the faith, but I have one thing against you, you've left your first love. You've lost that sense of love of Christ that you had at the beginning. So he said, repent, return to Christ, and if you don't, do you remember what the penalty was for if you don't? I'll remove your lampstand out of its place. The church was the lampstand. It was one of the seven churches in Revelation that, that John hears about he sees the picture of and jesus is saying because you've left your first love if you don't repent and return if you don't impact the world the way i've asked you to i'm going to have to take your lampstand out of the place and let some other church take it from here
And the sad thing is, apparently they didn't repent because in that area of the world now, it is largely unchristian. So Jesus is the light. Let me close with this passage. Let me just read it for you from the book of Revelation. Chapter 22, the end of the book. I want you to think about the fact that Jesus is the light. What's it going to be like in heaven if Jesus is the light? Verse 20, chapter 22, verse 1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming down from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will be no longer any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no longer any night, and they will, run, they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. As a believer, every now and then you need to read the book of Revelation and just be reminded what it's going to be like in heaven. Jesus came, he was the salt, he was the light, he's left that ministry to us now. So the question to leave with today is, how salty are you? You are salt, but how salty are you? Have you allowed the influence of the world to erode the property of salt that you should be exhibiting? How about the light? Is the light that you exhibit bringing people to you, or is it reflecting that light back on Christ and brings them to glorify God the Father? Let's pray together.